Welcome to our podcast, Leading Past Limits. We share lessons learned from the hard-won experience of mission-driven leaders so that you expand your horizons as a leader that places service before self. I'm Kumar Kibble, a leadership coach and the principal at GuideQuest. I've been passionate about developing leaders since graduating from West Point more than 30 years ago and have led high-performing teams as a military officer, special agent, diplomat, government, and corporate executive. Now I partner with leaders and teams as a coach to help unlock their potential and maximize their impact. In this first season, join me in learning from entrepreneurs, CEOs, Army generals, police chiefs, war heroes, thought leaders, and more. Be sure to subscribe and don't miss out on lessons learned from the real world School of Hard Knocks. Our guest today is Colonel Matthew Packard. Colonel Packard started his career with the Colorado State Patrol in 2000. He rose through the ranks to become the ninth chief of the Colorado State Patrol in 2017. And in that role, he leads a 1,200-person organization. During his diverse career, he's led operations and initiatives involving Homeland Security, where he served as the deputy director of the state's nationally recognized fusion center, hazardous materials, criminal investigations, executive security, and field operations. He also serves on the board of directors at the International Association of Chiefs of Police and as a commissioner for the Commission on Accreditation for Law Enforcement Agencies. In an area that really speaks to my heart, Colonel Packard has maintained a commitment to patrol member wellness and service. He's devoted to providing his people with the resources they need to be successful in both their personal and professional lives. Matt, welcome to the show. Uh, Kumar, thanks very much. I'm uh, glad to be here and uh, good to connect with you again, my friend. All right. Well, let's begin with what led you into the Colorado State Patrol. What drew you to law enforcement and the patrol in particular? You know, I, I'd, I'd like to say uh, there's a great, you know, long lifetime story, but uh, a couple of things. And, and lightheartedly, uh, I wanted to be a state trooper and they have really neat cars. And my dad will tell you <laughs> they had the best looking light bars and all that stuff, and a good looking car. And well, that's certainly true. But uh, truthfully, I... Uh, I was really looking for an opportunity to serve. I grew up in a community that was military heavy. My grandfather served in the military, always had a lot of respect for service. Um, and, I, and I wanted to find a career uh, that I felt connected to at, at, the, at, the, just at the, the core uh, where I could serve people and try to make life a little bit better for somebody. And uh, I, I became really, really interested in, in a career in law enforcement. And what did you, when you came on, you came on with these expectations and this idea of what, you know, it meant to be a trooper. What did you believe at the beginning of your career that you feel differently about now, so many years later? Yeah, you know, what I, when I first started, what was sexy about the profession was, you know, investigations. And in fact, uh, my, my career goals coming through, I graduated uh, with a degree in accounting because I wanted to go be an FBI agent. Uh, and I thought there was, that's just kind of sexy to be an FBI agent. And uh, uh, but I was going to be a going to be a police officer for a couple of years, and then go make the jump to be the to, to be a federal agent. And I I came on with the patrol, and I was opened my eyes to uh, how you can have this really immediate impact, right? And I uh, I, I was really it was fun, quite frankly. I, I, you know, they gave me a car that looked cool, right, and went fast. Uh, and they just said, "Go find bad guys and make Colorado a better place." And I said, "Boy, this is really neat." And I thought that I could, I had this ability to make impact in this community. And uh, but, but I really shortchanged uh, how much of an impact you could have. And I think initially, you know, on a, even on a traffic stuff, I was convinced that I was helping that person. 
but I really didn't understand um, how one conversation um, at two o'clock in the morning on the side of the road uh, could change a perception uh, of a community about a whole profession, right? And I think that's something that I appreciate today so much more that um, it's it's one-on-one -on -one interactions that matter. And mm -hmm. I, I didn't feel like I could make a, a broader change, uh, that much of an impact as, as a young trooper. That, man, if I could figure out how to show that to every trooper out there, every police officer out there today, that that conversation that you're, on, you're having right now uh, could be huge. Yeah, there, there are a few few things that strike me about what you said. One is, is uh, I've never quite equated sexy and accounting. <laughs> <laughs> but you're adding the FBI in there, so yeah. I get it. But um, what I really like is your comment on this one conversation at a time. And, and it also strikes me that for those that wear the uniform and that are uh, in patrol, I mean, you really have the opportunity to prevent crime or to prevent some bad thing from happening versus responding to it and investigating it after the fact. So would you, would you unpack that a little bit? Because you, you, you mentioned it a couple of times, this, this, this ability to change or influence things based on a conversation. Give, give us an example of what that looks like. You know, and I, I talk about this uh, when, I, when I'm talking to our troopers about how important those interactions can be because a story, uh, and I, quite frankly, I think it's really relevant with what's going on in the world right now, is uh, in, in our profession, it's really easy to, to get focused on the act or the crime that's being prevented and that you can stop uh, the timeline right there and, and not have an acknowledgement of how that might impact the greater good of a community because that sometimes, quite frankly, it's just so far you know, out. And so I think what that leads us to is very purpose, uh, maybe I should say task-driven conversations. Uh, you know, when you talk to a trooper about talking to a member of the, uh, someone you're suspected of a crime, uh, what you're, you're trying to get evidence to help support that conviction, right? That, that's right. you're driven, uh, you know, on the simplest context, well, why were you going so fast, right? Yeah. And they're giving you that answer. And, and hey, that's great for ticket notes. And that's great for, uh, for uh, making your stats look good. Uh, but that's, that doesn't help the, the, the greater purpose of what we're trying to do. And if you really step back and say what we're trying to do is make Colorado a safer place, and in that context, to make uh, Colorado's roads safer by having drivers that obey the laws that are there to help make them to keep people from dying and getting hurt. So maybe if you take the time in that conversation to, uh, to talk about that, that the reason that we're working here right now is because this stretch of road or this community has been stricken by a lot of car crashes that we can attribute yeah. to excessive speed. Uh, and so you're not you know, you're not building your ticket. Uh, you're you're uh, explaining to them why that's important, and hopefully, uh, the next time they're a better driver, not because they're worried about the fines, but that they recognize the danger. Uh, and yeah. that's a that's a conversation they can take back to family members and community members. That, I I love what you just said because I mean, and that applies I think not only to the person you're stopping on the side of the road, but to to the people that compose your workforce. Right, is connecting what they do, what might which might seem kind of routine or mundane in the moment. To that greater purpose yeah i mean i think it was famously i don't it was a kennedy who talked you know someone encountered a janitor and the janitor you know said what are you doing he said i'm putting a man on the moon that's right i mean i love that so i and that's important i think for even just building building the, the relationships i'm going to ask you more about this in detail later but with the community especially in the yeah. times we face right now you know what? I had the opportunity several years ago. The, the chief of the patrol at the time asked me to go testify 
uh, in opposition to some legislation that was being considered in our state that uh, it was in the wake of uh, the, 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 the situation in Ferguson mm-hmm. and uh, police reform type things. And uh, I had this opportunity that was a really uncomfortable room uh, at, at our state capitol. It's the biggest hearing room. And it was me and three or four police chiefs and then a room packed wall to wall with folks that uh, weren't so friendly with law enforcement. And it was story after story after story of all the misgivings and wrong wrongs that law enforcement has been done. But there was one conversation that really stuck with me. It was a woman who talked about her granddaughter being stopped by a by a, some random cop in suburban Denver uh, for some bogus violation. Uh, and she was telling this story. A, a black woman, her daughter was black and had her uh, uh, her boyfriend was in the vehicle as well, also a, a, a black young man. And it was all predicated in her mind on this BS stop uh, because it was in suburban Colorado, suburban Denver, that clearly the only reason the cops stopped him was because there was two black kids. Uh, but as she's talking about the stop, I'm thinking to myself, uh, yeah, I, I just stopped that car. You know, it's seven o'clock at night and he, uh, she checked the curb. And if you mm-hmm. talk to any state trooper, someone that hits the curb, that's a good, co- that's someone that might be drinking. Right. And a uh, long story, a little bit shorter is uh, the boyfriend went to jail. The, the traffic stop uh, started off on a bad spot. And I just, not knowing the both sides of the story, but I, I have to think that uh, if that police officer would have taken the time to talk about why mm-hmm. we stop people when they hit the curb, right? Uh, that maybe that, maybe that whole contact goes different. And uh, right. rather than going talking about how her boyfriend went to jail, uh, she talks about how, hey, you know, the, the, the police are out there looking for drunk drivers because uh, those hurt people. And right. uh, I was sober and he let me go. Right. Or I got this, you know, something like that. Right. Right. Let me uh, let me uh, I return to this theme of the uh, kind of like the beginning of your career and um, and just ask you about mentors that helped develop you along the way. I mean, are there are there some that stand out? Uh, absolutely. You know, I. um I look back to even as a young kid, my grandfather that, you know, he flew airplanes in World War II and um, he had a lot of really neat sayings. Like so many of us have those those figures in our life as are growing up. And uh, that's probably where my service that that really drive for service and uh, doing it the right way. He had a great mm-hmm. saying that I, I talk about all the time, but we'd finish a project in the garage and uh, it was good enough for government work. And uh, that was <laughs> that was always his comment. Uh, and, you know, you of course, you get, you get all of the the background with that statement, but I knew what, I knew what he really meant, right? It was because I know the detail that went into it and uh, in, in everything that he did. So that was big. But when I really look uh, back on my, my career in the state patrol, there's a couple of people that really stand out. And, you know, the first one is my first sergeant. Um, and today it's really neat. Uh, he is the senior sergeant uh, in our, in our organization. Uh, but I look back to him frequently and, and what leadership that he displayed me I, I try to mimic that to this day. You know, he, he cared about me uh, as sure. a human being and he was willing to get his boots dirty with me. Um, and uh, on the next Monday or the next morning, if my boots weren't cleaned back up, he let me know that too. Right. It was a really neat man. He must be, uh, I, I don't want to embarrass you, but he must be really proud of you. And, and I think it's a, it's an important point that you make because we encounter people along the way during our careers and uh, there's this, you know, this uh, metaphor of like dropping a pebble in the water and how the ripples ripple outward. And that's the kind of the legacy we leave on the people we touch. And, you know, if you stop and think about it, that first sergeant is actually having an impact on the entire patrol. Now he's doing that directly in his own way as well. But but through you and the other people he's touched and helped form, 
um, you know, he's, he's having a much larger impact than we tend to necessarily recognize. I, I, I sure hope he's proud of me. I, I, uh, uh, he's a significant influence and you're right. I, and I, I talked about the same thing. It goes, it's relationships matter. And, uh, yeah, yeah it, I hope he's proud. That's for sure. Yeah, we, we've yeah. got a special friendship, even with his family. It's, it's, it's neat. Yeah. Well, you've um, you've expressed a uh, a particular commitment to uh, patrol member wellness and well being. What what is that, and how and how do you build it? You know, it, it, I, a couple of different things throughout the course of my career that really made that important, and even some of my own my own personal journey. When I look back and some of my assignments over the years. Uh, where you just kind of go with the flow. And I, I look back and you go, man, I wasn't doing very well at that time. And I don't know that I knew it. And I, I don't know that I knew where to go. Uh, but people like Master Sergeant Enloe were there for me. Uh, and, and even when I didn't ask for it, and you had some of those friendships. But, I, but it became pretty evident to me that not everybody had that. And then in, in, in our organization, all of a sudden, physical fitness became really important. And I, what was interesting to me uh, was how resistant people were uh, you know, the, we had we had leadership in the organization that was we're going to have these standards. And if you can't do this, then uh, and, and that's how it was being communicated. And I saw this incredible resistance and another big influence. He's one of our lieutenant colonels now who talked about, you know, you know, the only time I ever did push ups was when I was in trouble. And now you want mm. people to go do and you want people to do push ups when we don't ask him to. That's that's it's punishment. Mm. And so I, I realized that, you know, this is a tough profession and uh, I want to retire and be good. And you see so many folks that retire and die because they didn't take care of themselves, whether it's mentally or, 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 uh, or physically. And so how do you, that, you know, I, I wanted to get people to under, recognize that on their own and do push-ups because it's good for them, right? And yeah. not because yeah. the patrol is going to do it. But the other part uh, I spent in, in, you know, Kumar, this is one of those things you could pull my string and I could talk for days about. But I, I spent time uh, in charge of our criminal investigations branch. And during that time, uh, troopers that worked for me, friends that worked for me, we sent to the theater shooting in Aurora mm. uh, where they worked that crime scene. There was a, a horrible abduction and, and murder of, of a young woman in a, in a suburb here that I asked troopers to go and be involved in. Um, you know, I have folks that, you know, we, we know our fair share of pretty awful incidents. And I watched... Uh, uh, these troopers, every time something came up because they're troopers, uh, yeah. they said, you need my help, I'll be there. Uh, and there's no thought to them what that was costing them personally. Yeah. But uh, we called for help uh, and they went. And I was watching them get trapped uh, and they weren't taking care of themselves. And I, you know, with, without being too specific, I, I, I was watching their personal lives fall apart. And I was mm -hmm. watching their mental health fall apart. And I felt, uh, I, well, I certainly felt guilt uh, about putting them in that situation, but I felt responsible uh, to help them find a way. And the more I started to look at that, uh, the more I realized that we had, a, we had an obligation, but a tremendous responsibility to be on the forefront of the well-being of the people that do this. And we owe it to them. Uh, because they are so willing to sacrifice all of that at the drop of a pin because their phone rang at three o'clock in the morning. They right. just go. And if we don't become active in that, and then bad things are going to happen to them. It's, yeah. it's really important. 
You know, the uh, in, in one of my coaching programs, we talk about 10 factors of resilience and well-being. And actually, you've been hitting on a number of them. I mean, there's obviously the physical well-being. You talked about a little bit about meaning and purpose um, and, and actually referenced it in one of your first answers in terms of connecting the work to, to other folks. You talked about social relationships. Um, but this mental well-being, I think, is a particular challenge in our profession in the sense that uh, there's a little bit in some organizations, a culture of I'm strong, I'm tough. Um, you know, how do you, did, did you encounter that? And if so, how do you over, how do you overcome that? Yeah, we're a, we're a group of people that don't ask for help. We provide it. Right? That's, that's right. at the core of what we do. And I, you know, I don't ever remember a, a, a sense, at least in our organization where people were, were shunned upon, right. Mm -hmm. For, for needing help. Uh, it was certainly sad when it became apparent and we'd lost them. Uh, but mm -hmm. I, I, but I, but then I realized that I, I didn't know where I was going to go. I mean, I, people would, oh, I'm going to go talk to this person or that person. I'm like, I, I don't know. And I was, especially when I was single, I don't know where I would go for that. So, so we needed to do that and we needed to make sure it's okay. And I, and so you just model that, right. And that's, that's mm -hmm. what we started working on is model that it's okay to say you're broken or, right. or something's, something's not working. So it's, it's absolutely been a challenge, but I'll tell you, uh, it works when you talk about it. Uh, in fact, I was in a conversation earlier today where uh, I'll bet you there hasn't been a week in several months where I wasn't talking to somebody where, where there was a reference to, hey, yeah, he's actually been really helped because he's been talking to doctor or, you know, he's been using our peer support or mm -hmm. like and, and those conversations. Uh, well, they just didn't happen five years ago, 10 years ago. Right. Right. We, we well, hit it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um well, you know, I, I think it's also important because of the trauma. I mean, you've kind of already spoken to it in terms of the response to that, that the, the kidnapping and also the Aurora theater shooting. But also when we lose our own brothers and sisters, um, the patrols lost five troopers that have been killed in line of duty since 2015. Would you please kind of unpack uh, the hazards associated with, with being a trooper? Because I, I don't think that's necessarily as intuitive to a lot of the, the, the lay people out there in terms of the, the full spectrum of threats that, that a trooper faces. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's, it's been an incredible uh, stretch of time for the, really over the last six years of the patrol. Just to give you some context, uh, 86 years that we've, of, of an organization, we were founded in 1935. And like a lot of law enforcement in, in that time frame, there was several that would die every year from gunshots and things along those lines. Medical advancements obviously were a big factor in that. But uh, 30, 30 troopers, 30 patrolmen uh, uh, in, in 86 years, but we've lost five since 2015. And all five of them were are, uh, engaged in real traditional trooper activity. They were on the road or on the roadside uh, working on a previous incident. So Taylor Tifo, uh, was uh, helping at a car at a at a crash scene when a, a fleeing driver uh, was trying to avoid some stop sticks, lost control, and struck and killed him. And uh, he wasn't even a trooper yet uh, officially. He was a cadet on, on a training ride at the very onset of his career. Five months later, six months later, we had uh, a trooper on on the interstate trying to flag down, trying to stop a drunk driver uh, while she covered another trooper on a crash. Uh, and this drunk driver struck and killed her, killed her instantly. One year later, one year and 10 days later, at a trooper on the side of the road, again, uh, helping another trooper at a car crash when a semi came through and, and uh, crossed over the fog line and struck and killed him. Uh, and then just 
you know, in 2000, uh, that was in 16, then 2019, we had uh, a, a trooper that was in a snowstorm uh, stopped to help a driver in another vehicle lost control and, and struck Dan. And, and literally two months later, uh, a trooper investigated a car crash um, and he, he was struck. And it became, was really challenging about that is in each of those incidents, uh, they were engaged in activity that right now, literally right now, there's probably 30 troopers in this state doing the exact same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And so recognizing this danger and we continue to ask these folks to go out there and keep doing it. Uh, and even though that they know in the last, you know, in some instances in the last three months, last couple of months, right? Uh, one of their uh, one of their brothers or sisters lost their life. Right. It, a pretty, pretty significant issue, right? And uh, yeah. traumatic and easy to identify. And then you got to go home and tell your family that I'm going to go do this job that, that, yeah, I know somebody just died doing. You know, I'm, I'm also interested, you know, uh, when I was a deputy director uh, at ICE, uh, one of our agents was killed in Mexico, Jaime Zapata. And um, it was really one of the first occasions when when I uh, dealt with the family, um, you know, directly in that kind of a, a tragedy. Um, and, you know, there's just nothing that really that you can say. I mean, you, there's just no way, I think, to really bring as much comfort as you'd like to. And I'm just curious about how you approach um these kinds of uh, how do you extend support to the family how do you try to uh provide comfort and and to well to, i mean to to help them appreciate uh, maybe that's the wrong word but to, to to um just that the sacrifice you know is honored and and uh and respect how do you deal with it i think the, the first answer is it, it has to be real yeah. Uh, and, uh, that, that's not hard to connect to. And I'll tell you, um, uh, <clears throat> when Taylor was killed, I was at the scene. I, I managed the scene and I really didn't get to know his mother until later. Um, but I look at, uh, when Jamie was killed, I, she was my trooper. I was her major. Um, and, uh, I, I told her husband on, and you know, I, I can recount that moment of probably among the most challenging things I've ever done. Uh, in his front yard underneath their tree with the baby monitor in his left hand, uh, told him that his wife had just been killed. And I knew he knew because standing at the scene, I saw his name on her cell phone as he kept trying to get a hold of her. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you, you have that. Um, and, and I know because uh, he is uh, a, a dear friend now. Um, I know that he really did not like me that day. And I know from our conversations that uh, Jamie I don't know. That's afraid. To she was afraid of me just because of my position. He'd say, "I drop her off at work, and all oh, the majors here. We got to get out of here, right?" It's this this culture thing. And I, in one context, I, I, uh, he, I would never have known him. I shouldn't know him, to be honest with you. Uh, but because of what happened, uh, we talk almost weekly. Right? We meet for lunch, and I, I guess that's the direct answer to your question: is uh, you show him that you care. And what turns out uh, is you. It's so easy for us. Uh, to create friendships with people that do what we do because we have common values and we think very, very similar. It turns out that they marry people that are kind of like us too. And uh, it's uh, uh, this morning uh, having conversations with uh, widows of our fallen members. And I I think uh, you got to put your money where your mouth is. It's really easy to say we will never forget. You know, we'll carve their name on a wall and we'll honor them once a year. Uh, But that's not enough. And that's not what it's about. And uh, we're a family. 
and uh, mm-hmm. families call each other and talk to each other and pay attention. And, and that's how you work through it. And I got to tell you, that helped. It's been a big part of my, you know, I'll use the term recovery as we manage through these things. And um, I didn't know Taylor because he was a cadet, uh, but I personally knew these other folks. Um, and it's, it's, it's neat for me to be able to have this connection now with their family, their kids, and their spouses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's good for us all. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I guess turning to a, a more positive um, note, um, what has been most satisfying about your law enforcement career? You know, there's a couple of different ways to answer that. I think uh, this is a profession where you get to help people and you get to sometimes answer the unanswerable. Um, you know, we're a, uh, we're a traffic safety organization and, and the ability to, to connect with a victim and help them understand an otherwise ununderstandable situation uh, is incredibly empowering. Uh, and I, I think it's been a big part uh, of my success is, is understanding that value. It's as fun as it was when I was 23 year old, uh, you know, taking people to jail. What I, what I really found my purpose uh, was when I was standing in somebody's living room um, and explaining to them why their loved one died in a car crash and what happened and creating, providing that closure, that sense of comfort. That was so, so meaningful uh, to me. And I, and that's, I've taken that now into, into my role now here as the chief where they have the ability to help people understand and help them connect with their purpose uh, and, and, and provide solutions or ideas on, on how they can uh, work through some of their struggle. It's been, it's, it's been a really neat, uh, neat opportunity. Matt, you keep emphasizing this idea of like connecting to their purpose. Where did that come? Was that something that was just organic in you when you showed up on the job? Or is it something that, you know, a, a value that someone handed on to you? You know, I, I, I don't, I guess I don't know. Uh, so it's mm. probably a little bit of both. You talk about my, my grandfather and, yeah. you know, I, you don't do anything. I, I, I remember conversations with my dad growing up when he'd said, uh, uh, he goes, don't be a leaf. Right? Don't be uh, that leaf in the wind that goes where, you know, don't be willing to land wherever somebody else wants you to land. And so that sense of purpose and finding that purpose became really, uh, you know, I wanted to be involved in where I was going to land. And that but it just keeps it just keeps showing up. And I, uh, I it, because I'm the chief, I get to talk to our trooper, our cadets on their, you know, early in their training and then remind them again in the graduation. And uh, I'll tell every single one of them, I said, uh, I, I could ask them you today why you came here and you all have your own reason. And you could give me the safe answer like I wanted to make a difference, but you have your reason. Uh, and you didn't accidentally become a police officer, in our instance, a state trooper. So I, I asked them at that moment to go write it down. And then on their graduation day, I said, you probably didn't do what I asked you to. Then, so I'm going <laughs> to ask you to do it again on this day on your graduation day. Write it down. Because here's the deal is there's days when this profession sucks. There's days when it's really hard where you got to tell somebody that their loved one's dead or, or when uh, the, the weight of your responsibility catches up to you uh, or when society is looking at you and telling you how awful you are at your job. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you remember that I don't know very many cops that became cops or, or members of the military that joined the military because they got a pat on the back every time somebody realized they did. You didn't do it for your personal gratification or somebody else's acceptance. You did it. You're willing to sacrifice because you believed in it, and yeah. uh, 
that's what gets me through those dark days. And I'd like to think that's what gets a lot of other folks is to go back to why do you do what you do? Uh, and it's worth a hell of a lot of sacrifice that you've already given up. And right. why would you flush that now? Right, right. Well, you, um, doing, during your career, you served in a, a number of different roles, um, but that included as deputy director of the Colorado State and Local Fusion Center, nationally recognized. Uh, you know, for, the, for those out there that don't know, what does a fusion center do? It's a really neat program. It's, uh, it, uh, you know, you're out there looking at information and, and, uh, from a variety of different sources and then making sure that as many people that need it have access to that, collecting, uh, adding value to it, and, and then making sure all the right stakeholders have what they need to know uh, to complete their mission. And that could be law enforcement, it could be fire, it could be critical infrastructure owners to help keep their, their products, their, their facilities safe. It's all of those things. And that at the core, that's what they're doing is making sure um, all of the right entities are connected so we can uh, be operating from as much of the same music, sheet of music as we can. Now, I've been in my fair share of jurisdictional disputes or tensions over sharing sensitive information or protecting sources and methods and that kind of a thing. So would you comment on on what your approach was to to overcoming any of those kinds of concerns? I think the first the first thing you have to do is build trust. Right. And I um, and, you know, there's the old adage of don't introduce yourself on the day of the crisis. Right. It, it starts. It starts right now, right? See me, see me before you need me. <laughs> right, yeah, I love it. that's a good one too. But it, uh, so you gotta you gotta meet people, uh, you gotta shake their hands, and then you gotta prove that that you can help and, and that you're reliable and trustworthy, and you're willing to do that. And that's really in in uh, as we were growing our fusion center, uh, those guys seems like yesterday sometimes, but uh, that's what it was, right? It was going out and walking into a room and shaking somebody's hand and saying, "This is what I can do for you." Um, if you just give me the chance to prove that it works. And uh, it, it was rough at the start, uh, but, but when you add value and you answer the phone, uh, people start calling you. And that, mm -hmm. it's been neat. And I tell you, uh, our state now, um, it, it's incredible uh, what, what we can do uh, as an agency, as a, as a collective profession, I suppose, to, to solve some of these crises. It's pretty neat. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's, let's come up to kind of more, more recent times. How does one become chief of the Colorado State Patrol? Yeah, persistence. You know what I? You know what I <laughs> I'll tell you. Uh, I, you know, I, I to be if I were completely honest, there was when I started. Like, man, I'd like to be the chief someday. And I, then I became a trooper, and I loved being a trooper. I said, I don't, I don't want to. This is great. Uh, look at all these things I can do. And then I said, ah, eventually, maybe I'll be a sergeant. And I took the test, and uh, and then I, I thought I had that all mapped out. And I thought I knew the job that I was going to want and get, and then they threw me for a loop and they said, uh, we want to make you a sergeant, but uh, we're going to send you to Trinidad. I said, well, if you, if you know anything about Colorado, Trinidad is the last town on the Southern edge. Uh, and I'm a city kid. I, I, it was, but you know what? I said, uh, all right, I'm in. And, uh, and did you have a family already at this point? At know? that point, it's just me. So it was okay, a little okay, bit easier. Okay, but, okay, uh, okay. but I, I said, uh, I said, I'll give it a shot. And I tell you, I went down there and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, it was good for me personally. Uh, and but from a professional standpoint, it, it ended up being tremendous. Uh, I, I started to meet people and do things and get, get uncomfortable. Uh, and that's when you can start to grow. 
And I just realized, uh, you know, I'd been down there for a little while and I got a call that said, hey, we'd like you to come up and do this job. Uh, and there was a whole bunch of reasons for me to say no to that. I had just bought a house. Um, and after living in a hotel for six months, I'd bought a house and it was closed in May. And in December, they called and said, we want you to come back to Denver for this job. But I'll tell you what, I, I, I lost my backside on that house. <laughs> but, uh, I came back and uh, I, I moved in. This is kind of a funny story. I moved in with my mom and dad because I didn't have any money anymore. And, uh, and then I met the woman that would be my wife two weeks later. And uh, I remember asking her, I said, oh, so where do you live? And I went, oh, my goodness, she's going to ask me where I live. And I'm going to tell her I live with my mom and dad. And uh, but uh, hey, it, it all worked out because I said yes. Right. I said, here's an yeah. opportunity to go into a position that I knew nothing about for the record. It was the fusion center position. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, I just look at that. And I, I have worked all along the way. Uh, I have never gone to a job or thought I was going to got the job that I thought I was going for every single time. was man, I don't know. I know nothing about hazardous materials. I, I wouldn't trade those experiences for the world. And I think that's really what, uh, what led me to this job is uh, when I was asking, when I was interviewing for it, I got to say, I've done all these different things and uh, I was uncomfortable in all of them, yeah. uh, but they made me better, more rounded. And uh, I like to think that makes me a pretty decent chief in this organization. Well, you, you said persistence, but what I'm also hearing as well is flexibility and adaptability. I mean, to have to be able to, to um, well, to answer the call when they're uh, looking to round you out with other assignments or, uh, and, it, and I, I imagine it makes you a better chief because you've, you've touched a lot more of the organization. I, uh, take the chance, uh, but uh, don't not only be willing uh, to get uncomfortable, force yourself to get uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it'd be really easy to transfer back, right? To, to someplace that I knew already. Right. Uh, but that's, boy, you're, uh, I, I will tell you now as the chief, uh, you got to make a tough, it's a tough sell for somebody that's trying to get promoted uh, yeah. for me to put them back where they came from. Uh, it's, it's it, cause they're not going to grow. Right. Uh, but either is the agency and right. uh, not good options in my mind. I would say probably a particular challenge for a statewide organization or a national organization, um, you know, that that's probably somewhat unique because of the the distances that someone may be called upon to to move to. Yeah. Yeah. It, you can work through those two. And it's easy for me to say, right. But when I was moving, I didn't have kids to worry about, but I, mm. but there's, there's other ways right, to find yourself. And I, it's, you know, it's what I tell our folks a lot too, that are in rural Colorado with their family. They don't want to move. So well then find a way to connect elsewhere, right? There's, mm. there's more than just this position, plug into this project or go seek out other opportunities. Uh, and that's uh, you can do it in other ways, I guess is the yeah. point. It's a, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's all, it's, as hard as it is, it's also easy to fall back as that's your excuse for not growing. Right, right. Well, wh what's the biggest myth about being chief? I mean, we all know you're all powerful. <laughs> you, you took the words out of my mouth. Like, the biggest myth is that I'm in charge, right? Is it, uh, you're, uh, it's, uh, it's neat. I, you have the ability to influence and make decisions, uh, but, but you're along for a ride, right? And that, yeah. that's... Uh, my wife asked me all the time, she goes, when are you going to be home? And I said, I, I don't know. I said, I, I check my calendar in the morning and I go where it tells me to go. And, uh, and, and then whenever the phone rings, I, that's probably the biggest myth is that, uh, that uh, you're in charge because only kind of. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and to your point, you're, you, you can be held hostage to 
a bad story in the newspaper or uh, testifying or whatever yeah. it may be. I know that uh, that's been certainly been my experience. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's always something, you know, there's a lot going back to well-being too. You, you, yeah. you have to be a little bit disciplined too, to know, yeah. know when you're tapped right. and, uh, and then and surround yourself with people that you trust and that are capable, but don't think like you, right? And uh, right. you'll be okay. Right. Now, leader, leadership is leadership. I mean, and you exercise skills, you know, from, and you don't even have to be in a formal position to exercise leadership. I mean, there's a leadership that just comes from informal authority and credibility. But as chief, what particular skills do you find yourself leaning on the most or that are most called upon if you were going to, you know, focus on a couple or two or three? You know, I, uh, maybe I'm taking this in a different direction. I, I would tell you, compassion mm. is what it goes back to in my, and, and compassion is you, uh, you need to care. Um, and, and perhaps the skill in that is, is empathy is the ability to display empathy, uh, to let folks that know that you really do care. And there's uh, it, that, that takes effort. Not because you don't care, but it takes effort to be able to show that, and yeah. uh, uh, and that comes from communication skills. It's uh, the ability to be there in the moment, all of those things. But I think uh, if you're going to be effective, if you're going to be able to lead an organization, I th it's a, it's not a position like you said. Uh, leadership is a is a verb. Yeah. It, it's an action, uh, and uh, you're you're not a runner if you don't run, right? Right. You, you got to be, uh, you're a leader and it, it takes, you got to be engaged in it and you got to do those things. And, and if you're going to be effective, then the people that you're leading uh, need to know that you actually care about them. And it's not, yeah. it's not lip service. You know, I, I, I think, you know, you made a very important distinction there because there may be leaders that have empathy and they care, but they might have difficulty displaying it, I think was the mm -hmm. word you used. And that is such a huge component because the, the troops we lead can't just like read our minds or, or, or divine what's going on in our hearts. So I, I think in authentic and sincere ways, it is really important to, to give them evidence of the caring. I mean, and, but it's gotta be real, can't be, can't be artificial. Yeah, and here's here's I, I got bad news for folks is you're going to make decisions that are the right decisions that are going to make people really upset mm -hmm. uh, that they're going to be they're going to be mad at you because they think you made a really dumb decision. Uh, but they'll forgive you or they're willing to try to understand that if they believe that you care about them and that you're doing it with their best interest in mind. Right. Uh, and that, you know, that that takes time to build. You got to prove that you care. And then all yeah. of a sudden you, you have a lot more rope to, to work with. Right. Right. You, you, you're, uh, you're kind of hitting on this idea, um, this trust is kind of, you said it earlier, care is an important component of that. And, you know, making a, a deposit in that trust account so that when the inevitable withdrawals come, the balance can sustain it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause I'll tell you what, when you, uh, with the withdrawals are always bigger than the deposit. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you're going to make a lot of small and yeah. regular ones. Yeah, 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 totally. Well, what uh, what surprised you the most about serving as chief? And maybe we've already touched on some of it. You know, I think uh, another thing I like to talk about too is you you never know all the way, right? You you think you know what the job is, and then oh, I didn't know about all of this other stuff too, right? And so I I think it was 
and I learned it pretty quickly, is uh, in, in my role now, I, I'd like to think I've been successful in my career because I was always willing to step up and do things and go out. And I, uh, I, uh, I don't do anything anymore. Right? It's this feeling. I, I, don't feel like, I, I don't feel like I've done anything for three and a half years. But I also feel like I've been going nonstop for three and a half years. Yeah, right. That was the biggest surprise is uh, that's not my job anymore. And that was a tough transition to make, actually, is to let other people do things yeah. uh, and, and help set a vision and, and help develop the plan and, and build the road. But ultimately, uh, other folks are going to do that stuff. And that, that, was, that was hard. Uh, but I, yeah. I tell you, once you figure that out, I tell you, it's pretty neat, too. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I, I think you indicate you're not doing something, but you, you are, you are also um, forming a culture, establishing a climate, setting a tone, laying down a vision. Um, how do you do all these things to uh, ensure that the patrol is a diverse, inclusive and a high performing organization? You know, there's a there's, there's another saying that talks about you can tell what's important to an organization by what, where they spend their money, right? And uh, the leader, the, whoever is on the top, can talk about how important things are, uh, but look at their balance sheet, right? What, right? Where are they spending their money? And sometimes it's not money; it's where are they spending their you know their resources and all of those things. And I, uh, I, I tell you what, uh, it, you you can talk about you know equity and and diversity and inclusion and all those things but if you're not putting resource to, to being successful and showing that why those things are important then then they're not uh, and i'll tell you it's easy to talk about diversity in the sense of race or gender or things along those lines and those are certainly important components to that uh, but diversity in thought and diversity in experience and, and, and diversity in perspective all of those things are so important uh, and uh, I mentioned it earlier is uh, people that are capable that don't think like you, right? That's yeah. all of those things. Like uh, an agency like ours, it's around the state. Uh, we have to have people that can relate at that uh, in those homes. And I, the best way I can talk about that is um, when I put on my uniform and I walk into a gymnasium full of people as a state trooper, they expect me to say, don't drink and drive, uh, wear your seatbelt, do all of those things. It's the can that the speech writes itself, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's the expected. But where we have value is when we connect with somebody or we have somebody that can connect with that community. And it's not in the gym, it's at home or at the restaurant. And they're talking about why all those things are important. Right. And the only way that you can do that is be trusted and be a part, and be, be engaged in those communities. And that means you got you to gotta be one of them. Right. And that's right. A, that's it. You become a more effective ambassador. Yeah. You, you know, what also hits me, though, is I remember vividly when I was going through my uh, my master's program, we had the uh, uh, commissioner for uh, Baltimore PD mm -hmm. um, come and speak to us. And he talked about this. This is the diversity of thought and experience. He talked about how at one point he looked around at his command staff and he realized that they all had a SWAT background. And, and, you know, I think there's an interesting lesson there because we maybe unconsciously will oftentimes surround ourselves with people that are in our comfort zone or that have similar backgrounds. There's a shorthand in the way we communicate. And the issue he brought up was, is that, you know, when, when everyone that's sitting around the table is, uh, is really adept at using a hammer, then every problem's a nail. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and so he worked really diligently to try to round out the types of experiences of people that were his senior advisors so that he could come up with more, he could test ideas and have, uh, you know, and have uh, more comprehensive solutions to, to the public safety challenges he faced. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I look at, so our, the, in the history of our organization, as the top has always been troopers. It, yeah. uh, in fact, by state law, the person that's the chief came up through the ranks. You can't be hired from outside. Uh, and then you get uh, lieutenant colonels. And in order to be a lieutenant colonel, you had to be a major. And, and all the way down through, right, in certain time breaks. So what you, ha- you end up having, right, are, are people that have literally the exact same resume uh, mm-hmm. for, for 20, mm-hmm. 25 years. And it's no wonder that change doesn't happen, right? Uh, and, you know, quite frankly, in, in law enforcement, we, we had a lot of white men that were leading the organization, right, that, that mm-hmm. worked and came through the same. And we weren't able to connect with the people that we are hiring, even on accident. And as you're recruiting and trying to get people, it, it's not working. So we made one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm particularly proud of is uh, where we can, uh, we're bringing outside perspectives, right? And on our command staff now, we have people in positions that aren't uniform uh, that are coming and bringing from a different background that don't think don't didn't go to the same training and i'll tell you uh, we have grown as an organization so much since we went outside and found that perspective and 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 you can do that without forfeiting your heritage and your tradition and all those things right Uh, but we are uh, we're so much better for it we're doing things today uh, that that uh, number one people thought were never possible, uh, and mm. that were it was so foreign. It's it's. What's an example of that? You know, we have um, so our chief of staff. So we, uh, this is a position that we never had before, um, and uh, it's it's someone that is uh, that I worked with for several years, and I, I trust her. Uh, but uh, she's she, uh, and uh, she's never been a cop, uh, never. In fact, she started with us. Uh, in the Fusion Center as an Intel analyst, right? And it was an internship. Uh, but uh, we we found herself, and I, it, it, well, long story short, uh, she is uh, a member of the executive command staff. She is at the, she is one of uh, five of us that lead this organization every day. And we'll sit in our weekly meetings and management meetings and talking about things. And her perspective is so different. Uh, and we're talking about things like pursuit tactics, right? We had a meeting yesterday talking about uh, how we're engaging in pursuits. And you ask police officers uh, how you should engage in a pursuit. And most police officers say, well, you chase them and they're, they're running for a reason, right? But you can have somebody else's perspective that says, well, uh, you know, maybe it's because whatever that might be that, that's so foreign to us. And you have, well, you need to look at it from this. It's not about catching the bad guy. It's looking at all these other things. And so, it's probably not the best example, but it's just that different perspective that because someone is totally different or uh, a great one, a gender issue, or you're talking about certain things uh, that, that are synonymous with men. And in this profession, there's a lot of men. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, and she could provide an example of why that makes her incredibly uncomfortable. That yeah. I, I just don't have that perspective because I've never had to be, be in that situation. Yeah, yeah. What would you... Uh... What would you identify as the most significant leadership challenge the patrol faces today? You know, uh, 
14, 15 months ago, I would have told you uh, leading this organization through, and it continues to be a challenge, through our tragedy over the, those last uh, five or six years is convincing people that it's, I know it's dangerous, uh, but we're going to get through it. And I, we did a lot of really neat things, and we're doing a lot of really neat things that uh, people are, I, I, I feel safer today at work, and, that's, and they are safer. But I think today, uh, with, with all the pressures on law enforcement and the talk about being in a fishbowl, it's like a fishbowl with mm-hmm. magnifying glass, right? They're looking at every stone, every hair, uh, and there's a lot of people that are willing to, uh, to, to provide you know, their thoughts on how you should do what you do. Uh, and, and, and now they're, you know, from a police officer, a, a trooper's perspective, they're taking away all the protections at the same time. And it's pretty scary. And uh, it's, it's a challenge. I, uh, I was talking about it uh, to, to some folks earlier. Two weeks ago, we had two troopers that were parked behind our office uh, and uh, thought they were in a really safe place until a car drove by and uh, fired five rounds at them. The only reason they shot at them was because they were police officers. Uh, and these are uh, uh, these are people that made specific choices to be where they were because they thought they were safe and had yeah. calculated why, and that was stripped from them. Uh, so now you're asking these people to give up potentially their life, right. uh, uh, but it, but realistically, you're giving up uh, your your physical well-being, you're giving up your time, your thoughts, your uh, so much to do this job, uh, and. And they don't feel like it's appreciated. Right. And I got to tell you, I don't want to live uh, in a place that doesn't have a strong law enforcement. That is, it, it's a. Yesterday, I was listening to a speaker that that that's what makes this a democracy. Right? It's a it's a key to our democracy, and I don't want to live a place without that. Right. Uh, and we lose it without good men and women that are willing to step up. And uh, that's a that's a challenge. What, in your view, um, do we need to do? To in, for our profession to kind of reclaim, um, well, I don't even want to say reclaim. Well, because I, as we're you know we're an honorable profession, but there's this perception out there. What do we do? I guess to reclaim the narrative uh, around the the truth of of you know just the self sacrifice that so many law enforcement officers on a day to day basis you know are making. Uh, what, how, how do we connect better with the public? Yeah, I'll, uh, maybe this takes it a different way. I think we need to stop talking about us publicly. Mm. I think, uh, and, and I will, don't get me wrong, we have any, we, this is an incredibly noble profession that is filled with incredible men and women that do incredible work every day. Uh, but what we have not done uh, well at all as a profession, in my view, is understand why why folks think feel the way they do mm-hmm. and our solution thus far has been to talk about it. and i've been criticized by troopers and by members of this organization is how come you haven't stood up and said that's not us i said because because then i'm acknowledging that it might be like i that it, i know it's not us and i'm sorry but me frankly saying that's not us isn't working uh because mm-hmm. that's what we've been doing we talk about it all the time mm-hmm. and we 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 publicize that, but but that narrative isn't being listened. And what we're not doing is understanding why people have that perspective. We're not asking that question. And I think if we're going to be successful um, in, in restoring this more uh, symbiotic relationship between law enforcement and the people that we're here to serve, 
right, mm -hmm. is that we have to understand why they have the perspective that they do. And the only way we're going to do that is be willing to go into a room and listen. Mm -hmm. uh, and I go back to that story I talked about of sitting in that committee room at the state capitol and, and having, I, I could have sat there with my head down and rolled my eyes about one bogus story after the other. And you know, I have no confidence that that's the way that happened, right? Or that was the right, listen and, and take the moment to sit back and say, all right, I understand that perspective. I, it's a, I've, uh, this is another hot topic for me right now is uh, law enforcement started, you know, you talk about the old cannons of back in, in Europe when it was where the, the police are the people and, and all that stuff's great. Uh, but I got news for folks that law enforcement in this country doesn't have a, a you know, a crystal clear history. Right. In, in fact, there is law enforcement that was used in pretty atrocious ways not that long ago. Our history is young and there's people who were impacted by that uh, that are still alive today. And I talk about my grandfather and guess what? They talk to their kids and their kids and those people, their perspective of this profession is based not on their interaction uh, because a person might only have two or three interactions with a cop their entire life. Yeah. Their perception is based on what their family told them and how they're the community they grew up in that narrative. And we, we don't do a good enough job of acknowledging that that's the truth yeah. and understanding it. We, uh, we're not the police of the 1960s or the 1950s of, of that those, those eras where some atrocities were done. We're not, but we just can't say that. We need to acknowledge that that happened and say, all right, I get your perspective uh, and, and, I, and I value your perspective. Uh, so, and that'll get us in the door. And then maybe that gets us the opportunity to talk about who we are today and why, what we have in place to prevent those things from happening before. I think that's, uh, we don't need a, at this point, uh, we don't need a bigger megaphone. Uh, I think what we need is a, is maybe a mute button and the ability to sit down and listen. And we're, we haven't been great at that. Is that. Let me challenge you on that a little bit, because like, so I, I, uh, I remember we had a recent, it was a recent shooting of the, the young lady that had uh, the knife in the hand that was attempting yeah. to stab her friend. I remember reading an article and you had to go about seven paragraphs in before you ever got to the point where you knew that she was armed with a deadly weapon. Right. Um, do you find that the coverage is fair uh, in terms of episodes that may play out uh, with respect to the, the organization you lead? Now, and by the way, as I ask that question, I recognize, well, life isn't fair and we got to put on our big boy and big girl pants. And but but the reason I ask is because then does that place more of an emphasis on us figuring out how to tell our, our story if we're not getting fair coverage. I, so uh, I, I think anybody that tells you the coverage is fair is, is foolish, right? That it's, there's no doubt about it. There's a reason I read three or four papers in the morning right. is right. to get all sides of it, right? And somewhere the truth is in the middle. Uh, so I, 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 and I have the same, I think there's a, in several, and you know, that story is, that instance is, is all over, but I guess the point that I'm making is uh, going finding the other news outlet to talk about, you know, the other the fact that's not going to work either because the because right. the message is being heard by only by the people that are wanting right, to listen right, to it. Right. And so if we can we can go to these conversations and go to these outlets and talk about why we do what we do and 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 what we're doing to prevent that from occurring and find that story. I think that's great and talk about the culture that we're having that we're building and what we're what we're trying to 
to be as organizations, as a profession. Let's talk about that um, and, and, and have that narrative be defined by what we're hearing from the people that we're serving as right. opposed to what we think uh, our right. newspaper or our media outlet right. is telling us they want. Right. Have you, I mean, one of the things that I, I always uh, admired about um, state and local policing is I think more so than federally, there's a premium on establishing trusted relationships with, with members of the community. Uh, it's not that the feds don't do it. It just, um, at least in my experience, there hasn't been the same kind of emphasis or need in the same way that a major city police chief, or I would imagine you as a chief of Colorado State Patrol, you know, the, the relationships that you have to have that extend into the community. Do you, have you found in your experience that, that that buys you more grace, that they, they, you know, because there's a trusted relationship, because you've invested in it, that um, they're able to be advocates for, for what you are trying to do and what you're trying, the people you're trying to lead? A hundred percent. And it goes back to uh, don't introduce yourself in a crisis, right? Uh, yeah. it, it, we are going to make mistakes. Uh, we're going to make mistakes. And obviously you need to, if you're trying to hide them, you're going to lose. Uh, but your ability to talk about those mistakes and talk about what you're going to do and actually be heard requires you to have those relationships in advance. And I'll tell you, it's tough for us as well. Uh, because we're, we're, you know, we're on the highway, we're on the road. We're not necessarily in the schools and at the, right. at the grocery store. We're, we're different, but, but that doesn't mean we're not, those relationships aren't as important. We got to find those to have. And, you know, for us, maybe that's, you know, legislators, it's representatives that are coming from these communities. Uh, but, you know, every state trooper lives in a neighborhood somewhere. Uh, yeah. And, and to, to make sure that we have, have that to, to help folks understand I, it, I'm repeating what you said, Kumar. That's you're absolutely right. Those are really, really important. But, but if you're hoping to make those, uh, you, you're not making those relationships right now, right? Uh, in in a community that that's not trusting of you, right? Right. Well, we are at the end. But before I let you go, I want to ask you if you had to boil down your leadership philosophy to a few key essentials, um, what would they be? Now you've talked a lot about connecting to purpose. You've talked about care. What are, what are some other things that people should really kind of have in mind if you're going to try to simplify this and just boil it down to, to the essentials? We've talked about a lot today, right? Caring and, and showing that you care and helping people connect with their purpose. Uh, but I try really hard to surround myself with people uh, that are willing uh, to provide input. Uh, just because I can make the decision mm -hmm. uh, doesn't mean I should, right? And I think... Uh, where I can is to, to help push some of those decisions down to see what other somebody others might do and help them understand the different perspective. I think that helps them grow as a leader. Yeah. Uh, but really surround myself with people uh, with a diverse uh, thought that maybe are an expert, maybe they're not, uh, but they'll provide their feedback before I make a decision. I was told uh, when I promoted to captain that uh, almost none of the decisions you make as a captain are emergencies. Uh, and you can always reflect and and seek some guidance and input. And uh, I've carried that through. Sometimes you got to be willing to make them, but uh, but uh, engage other people. You'll be better for it. Thank you, thank you, Matt. Thank you for spending the time with us today and sharing lessons learned. Uh, where can our listeners connect with you and learn more about the Colorado State Patrol? You can uh, 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 you can go to Google Colorado State Patrol. You can go right to our website and learn a lot about us. You can certainly follow me on. Uh, 
uh, on Twitter and Instagram as well. I think it's uh, Colonel C-O-L at C-O-L Packard uh, on Twitter. And uh, talk a lot about it. I'm pretty proud of this organization, what we do, and uh, we'd love for you to learn more about us. Thanks, man. Uh, take care, Coomers. Good to see you. Yeah.